Hi everyone, welcome back to a new episode of the Phantom Science Podcast. We are back, finally, after a very long break, but we're back with a very special guest, Dr. Arthur Chang, who is a muscle physiologist at York University. Arthur specializes in fatigue and recovery, so we talked about a lot of topics within this area, from ice baths and hot tubs, uh, which one he would recommend for which type of exercise, to nutrition, so which foods to eat before, during, and after exercise to optimize performance. We talked about antioxidants, anti-inflammatory drugs, performance-enhancing drugs too, um, and a lot more within this area. So I hope you guys find this as helpful and as enjoyable as I did. And if you do, please consider leaving a like and subscribe to the channel for more interesting episodes coming soon. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy. Thanks a lot for taking the time to join me today. I know you have a very busy schedule, so I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about, you know, some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, super interesting stuff. Uh, so before we dive deep into some hardcore sports science, just kind of curious how you got to work in this field and like what kind of made you choose muscle physiology in particular? I think it was just being exposed as a kid to physical activity and sports, you know, just being always outside mm -hmm. and playing like road hockey and right. cycling with my dad and my brother and my friends and, mm -hmm. and just always being active. Like that was a thing I always mostly did in my spare time. And so right. I just love sports. And, uh, and I think it was just kind of continuing along that. And then I, Ended up kind of getting a little bit more competitive into a sport, which is archery, oh, <laughs> which nice. is the funniest sport, you know, like you no, would, that's it's awesome. not a typical sport that many yeah. people get into, but you know, maybe I watched one too many Rambo movies in the mm -hmm. past or something like that, but I thought it was really cool. I mean, and they're good I movies. Let's it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a good movie. Uh, you know, not the most exercise intensive sport, maybe perhaps more technical, mm -hmm. but what happened was I got really like a lot of injuries and so forth uh, during that period of time when I was uh, doing archery that was in high school. And uh, and I just really got interested in the body. Like then in that period of time when I was overcoming my injury and doing rehab, then I was seeing like several physiotherapists, a couple of chiropractors, massage therapists, and everyone was telling me like different things to do for rehab treatment. And I thought about from the context of also training because when I went to the gym, everyone was also doing different types of training. Everyone didn't know what was the most effective practice. And I guess that's the research brain kind of got it started, you know, like, okay, if I'm in the gym or if I'm, you know, going to do rehab or physiotherapy, I want to know what is the most effective, you know, way to get stronger, you know, and if you get stronger, you get faster and so forth. And, right. and that kind of really got me into kinesiology. So then I pretty much gave up, you know, archery because I had a really bad injury in my shoulder. And then I just kind of focused more on school and I went to kinesiology because of that focus mm -hmm. of exercise science and really have an interest in that. And, uh, and then I just kind of took off and it kind of really just, then I was at McMaster University for my undergrad degree and just some profs really raised a lot of interesting, intriguing questions, like open questions, like, hey, we don't know what's going on here. And I took a muscle fatigue course and it was probably one that really caught me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. Like fatigue is, is just fascinating because, you know, this is what dictates our exercise performance when we're talking about competitions, right? Yeah. A lot of the time. And then with these open questions, it just kind of made me think, you know, what about a research project? So mm -hmm. then I started with an undergraduate um, thesis project at McMaster with uh, Dr. Audrey Hicks. 
And then it was a project on fatigue, fatigue and aging, actually. And then I just was like, this is super cool. And then I just kind of continued with that. Went into grad school. I didn't necessarily think that I wanted to get into academia. It was just more like, I want to see where this goes. Okay, so you didn't have like an end goal. You were kind of just... Yeah, I was just seeing where it would take you. You know, academia is not sold to you as a career avenue, mm-hmm. you know, when you're an undergrad necessarily. It just kind of, you know, you know profs are doing it, yeah. but you're not, you don't know where it's going to lead you. That's and of true. course, when you kind of continue on in grad school and academia, you're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to become a prof in the future. But, you know, nowadays, I think that there's also a large majority of people that are not, you know, working in academia or going into private industry. I would say probably, if anything, that there's many more jobs you know, potentially available, you know, in that industry. And I think we have to do a better job in grad school to set people up to also be employed Mm -hmm. outside of academia as well. Yeah. I mean, the job market for academia is so saturated. It's, it's so hard to get a job. Yeah. In universities. Oh, it's so difficult. You know, like, I mean, you're from, let's say you're from Toronto. How many universities are in Toronto that have exercise science programs, right? Um, U of T in York and U of T York and University of Ontario Institute of Technology Ryerson. Yeah. I don't I think, think yet, Ryerson right? Yeah. And then you know you have to wait for you know someone who might be already doing research. Let's say you did grad school in the lab of someone who studies mm-hmm. uh, whatever fatigue. You know they're probably not going to hire another person studying fatigue yeah. until that person retires. Yeah. And even if they retire, they may be looking for a completely different. You know, uh, you know new person to come in to mm-hmm. complement what their new strategy is right so uh you know like it's it's a really long avenue to to get into academia and to get a faculty position you know but when you get it it's of course you know mm-hmm. doesn't stop there <laughs> and no. then there's a lot of work and you know but the cool thing and i think the the thing where you you know really wake up and if you you come in and you're still excited about coming to work and you're, you know, really excited about teaching students about the knowledge that you have, and then you're excited about the research. And I think, then you know, maybe academia is definitely for you. You know, mm-hmm. and I think regardless of what job you get into, you should just pursue your passions. You know, like you yeah. know, take that time to just, you know, make sure that okay, what am I really fascinated? What am I interested in? Just pursue it, right? Yeah. And then just see what it takes you. And I would say that's kind of take that's it. I just kind of pursued my passion, uh, and and took a shot, and you know, here I am. So. And even before academia, you were working in the private industry, right? So you did kind of both. No, like in- no, I was in academia the whole time. No, oh, I went, so in Sweden, I, your job was still in academia? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then I was in grad school. I was at Western. Mm-hmm. And then after I did my master's PhD there, and then I never stopped. It's just like from from like undergrad yeah. to master's, master's PhD, PhD, that I did my postdoc. And I was at Karolinska Institute in Sweden, which oh, okay. is a medical research institute. It's not a really university because it just focuses on mm-hmm. really health and medical research. Um so it's like a small university, you could say. But mm-hmm. having said that, it's, uh, well, they were the Nobel Prize for Medicine. So they're probably most famous for that. <laughs> they had the Nobel Assembly on campus and the profs at Karolinska essentially decide who gets Nobel Prize. Wow. So that's pretty prestigious. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad thing to have on your resume. That's yeah. cool. And uh, then I became senior researcher there. You know, uh, people found, found a, a lab group there, a supervisor who was just fan- amazing. You know, mm-hmm. I've had such great influence when I was at grad school with working with uh, Dr. Charles Rice. And then I kind of work with Dr. Hogan Westerblatt, who is like the foremost expert in studying muscle fatigue. And it was just awesome working with them. So I just stayed out there and had a fabulous time, not just through work. Yeah. And really, you know, of course, it's really important, I think, to go find people that inspire you. And I definitely had that influence. And that's why I continued on. Uh, whereas, 
uh, you know, I think regardless of what area of work, you know, hopefully you can work with people that inspire you. You know, that decides whether or not you're going to continue on with that That's area of work. And uh, yeah, so then I then then it was like I finally job popped back in Toronto, and I was, you know, loving my life in Stockholm. And in some ways, I was thinking, you know, maybe I might stay here. I don't know. But then all of a sudden, the job popped up at York University, and and I pursued it. And it was, it, it, yeah, it was worked out. You know, I think it was really. Uh, you know, I, I could bring something new into like York, and uh, and and uh, I thought it like was a good place for me to kind of collaborate with some other people, and it's just been amazing. Like I just had such a great experience. We have such a great uh, chair running the department, uh, Angela Bocastro, and uh, great faculty members are super supportive, mm-hmm. and you know I think it's it's also you know one of the top kinesiology programs in is, in Canada, yeah. North America, the mm-hmm. world now, right? <clears throat> and uh, and I think it's just maybe because of the fact there's just really so much support uh, for each person and also the research programs. And, you know, definitely can see myself here, you know, staying here in the long term and I don't really see any reason why yeah, I wouldn't I mean, stay it's perfect here perfect situation. Moment. You're from the Toronto area. I'm from you're, Toronto originally, yeah. You did the abroad thing, you're done. Now, yeah. Now it's time to work home. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, you know, I think it's great. I, I would advocate anyone like going abroad and getting that research, exp- like getting that experience. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you think of it just from a research perspective, which is great because then you end up having a whole nother, uh, like a uh, bunch of collaborations internationally, which in the long term looks really good for your research career, but also is really good because you can you develop so many new like collaborations in the world and, and to make those connections mm-hmm. is sometimes really difficult. But if you actually go and study abroad, I think you already establish those connections. And when you come back, those connections are super easy to connect, reconnect with. Right. And I can send my students out there, get some work done and mm-hmm. on, on some projects or new techniques, you know, that mm-hmm. can be developed. That's what happened with me. I brought back a technique that essentially no one was doing in Canada. What is it? It is well, essentially working with these uh, single muscle fibers. Right. Right. But essentially we're working with, living single muscle fibers and and you know we're, we're going to be the foremost experts of that at york university and you know i think training people in the future on doing mm-hmm. this technique and seeing seeing how it can be utilized to kind of study fatigue and study muscle weakness and so forth i think will be you know york will be at the forefront of that because mm-hmm. i essentially took a technique that was developed at by hulk investorblad at you you know at Karolinska institute and you know i you got that here. training yeah. got that expertise and i'm bringing that here wow. So, uh, so I think that's going to be really exciting moving forward. Well, it's a perfect segue to get into it because the first thing I kind of wanted to get into is uh, before we discuss anything about fatigue and weakness, if you could just explain what fatigue really is in terms of like the molecular and the chemical change in our muscles. Mm-hmm. So how do we get fatigue uh, from a physiological perspective? Yeah, I would say at the most basics of it is that you know, fatigue, when we talk about fatigue, there's many different types of fatigue you can talk about. You can talk about psychological fatigue, mm-hmm. you know, that I'm tired or something like that from a long work day. Um, you can talk about, you know, maybe, uh, yeah. Aerobic fatigue or something. Yeah, like you know, like, yeah. Then if we talk about exercise fatigue, which uh-huh. is what we really are dealing with, yeah. exercise-induced fatigue, then, you know, is fatigue induced by kind of exercise and muscle contractions, repeated muscle contractions that are exhausting your energy sources in the muscle. And what fatigue is really is that, you know, the rate at which you're using energy is not met by the rate at which you're providing energy to the muscle, you know. So, mm-hmm. so then that ends up either resulting in accumulation of, you know, muscle metabolites and particularly results in metabolic stress that can result in free radical generation within muscle. And, and uh, yeah, that's, or you end up 
just resulting in you can't produce enough energy in the muscle anymore, which right. is because of you, you've depleted your carbohydrate stores in the muscle or so forth. And those all then essentially lead to fatigue. So the, when I was kind of preparing for this, uh, most people said that there's three kind of hypotheses as to how fatigue occurs in the muscle. And one of them is, you know, you deplete the glycogen stores or you run out of ATP or um, you have more, the calcium potassium pump is not working efficiently. Is that like, are those three kind of the main ideas behind fatigue or would you say one is more accurate than the other? I would say the first two are definitely accurate. You know, when we talk about glycogen, glycogen is the major energy source that you use while you're doing like modern intensity exercise, high intensity exercise, mm. and maybe even like long duration type exercise. It's your main energy source that you're using in muscle contraction. So definitely glycogen depletion is the major cause of fatigue during endurance prolonged exercise or repeated high intensity exercise. ATP actually is, it's arguable to some people whether or not ATP depletion is an issue because there's so many factors inside the muscle that are trying to maintain ATP concentration. Um, and the only instance in which ATP concentration seems to decrease, uh, to cause fatigue, to be an energy related issue is during like all out like 30 second max sprint exercise where you just are not only like exhausted like you know you're, you're completely you know if you've ever done one before it's like you know one of the major ways of doing that right now with high intensity interval training and so forth these yep. like wind gate cycling like yep. 30 second all intervals at the end of that interval uh or even after one minute interval people have been able to show with muscle biopsy that atp concentration is sufficiently depleted that could be causing fatigue with those concentrations of atp mm. So in the lab, how do you stimulate um, muscle contractions and fatigue and stuff like that? Is it all through just natural exercise, like you have them do exercise, or how do you stimulate that in the lab? Yeah, so there's different ways of uh, doing that. Of course, if we talk about you know doing the studies on humans first, mm -hmm. then we can just do you know voluntary exercise. We can have those individuals cycle on a bike and then kind of just look at their power output and then essentially, or do like a time trial. Yeah. So there's several factors that can determine fatigue. So we have to quantify it first, right? So we have to either look at, you know, time as a factor. So like, you know, running time, 5K running time is longer or shorter. That can dictate whether you have more or less fatigue. Um, then if we're actually talking about muscle function, then, you know, we use measurements of strength or power as kind of output measures to quantify fatigue. And I mean, if we think about the main function of muscle, main function of muscle is to generate force or to generate power. Mm -hmm. So when that ability is kind of impaired, that is a very good measurement to suggest to you that, or to actually show that there is fatigue in that muscle. So um, how does our stamina improve with continuous exercise? Like the first time or uh, the first couple of times, three times you work out, you're going to be fatigued quite quickly i guess if you have no uh, no background in exercise but then the more you exercise the the your time to fatigue increases yeah so your stamina gets better how yeah. does that happen physiologically in the muscle well one of them if we talk back about glycogen was if you actually looked at trained people they end up storing much more glycogen in their muscles uh with continuous training and what essentially happens is is that when you go out and you exercise you will use up those carbohydrate energy stores inside your muscle. And when you end up having depletion of 
muscle glycogen, when you end up then finishing the exercise and recovering from that, what will end up happening in the recovery phase, as long as you're eating carbohydrates, is that your muscle will actually store in the end after 24 to 48 hours. You'll actually end up having more glycogen in your muscle than before you did that first exercise. So it kind of like is compensating. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's of course called glycogen supercompensation. So you have a certain glycogen level, you deplete it with exercise, then it completely is then it's like stimulated to restore and it mm-hmm. restores to an even greater extent than you began with. Right. And now you have a greater glycogen store and since you know that's a major energy store mm-hmm. muscle that allows you to go further and then it seems like this continues. I guess this maybe this process continues and allows you to kind of store more and more energy within the muscle. I think another thing too is you end up getting more efficient with how you use your energy. Mm-hmm. So um, another thing experience? just from training so biologically within the muscle mitochondria are the major powerhouses of the mm-hmm. muscle if you end up having kind of more mitochondria or more efficient mitochondria you can end up kind of using that uh, energy in a more efficient way by using oxygen over time and if you kind of and you know end up you know breaking down carbohydrates and glycogen and use oxygen to mm-hmm. you know essentially use that energy source you know it's much more uh, of a efficient and sustainable way of of producing energy so you kind of end up becoming more efficient inside the muscle and also lipid oxidation too fat utilization also ends up you know increasing and improving so if you can rely more on fats for energy Mm -hmm. um then that can offset essentially your your reliance on glycogen as an energy source so that's kind of what i was going to ask you next is um, you mentioned carbohydrates because, you know, that's what um, restores the glycogen uh, supply of yeah. the muscle. Yeah. But what about fats also? Like for endurance athletes, I know that fat-based diets are pretty huge for them mm. uh, because they can rely on that instead of tapping into their glycogen stores. Yeah. What do you think about about that? Are you more of like a carbohydrate, just a traditional carbohydrate-based recovery diet kind of? Definitely. Yeah. I I really don't. I mean, I think definitely fats are are important, of course, but you know, relying on fats to provide energy, it's like, it, 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 it's a very slow energy source. Mm. And although it's like provides a ton of energy, you know, per gram, it yeah. actually is not the most efficient way of generating ATP. Like, it, sorry, it is efficient from the context of that it provides a ton of energy, but it can't provide it rapidly. Yeah. So, you know, you, you actually don't rely on it that heavily during intense exercise. Um, so really, it's the carbohydrate, you know, that you primarily depend on. So do you need more fat? I wouldn't, no. I don't think you ever really need to supplement your, your, your diet with fat. I mean, fat is just good, you know in general for your body because all your cells and stuff like you know your yeah. lipids you know the membranes are dependent on actually having you know fat um and also you know uh I believe vitamin d you know some vitamins are also reliant on actually you know that you are taking in fat and having fat to mm-hmm. to you know to kind of integrate that and use it in your body so no i don't think i don't think fat is important in terms of exercise f- and fatigue per se yeah maybe not from f- fatigue but but yeah. Um, as far as like anaerobic and aerobic exercise, anaerobic definitely relies way more heavily on glycogen stores. So a carbohydrate-based diet would be ideal for them and also for aerobic. But I think there's more leeway for fat in the aerobic department, no? Um, yeah, well, you can actually use glycogen both aerobically and anaerobically. 
And then depending on if you use glycogen more aerobically, then you end up kind of becoming more efficient. If you rely on it more anaerobically, you can break mm -hmm. down and, and produce energy much faster, but that produces you know, metabolites actually, like right. lactate and hydrogen ions and makes your muscle you know, uh, acidic and so forth, and those can contribute to fatigue in, in different ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say more, it's not necessarily supplementing fat in your diet, but there are ways of, you know, for example, like keto diets, yep. you're increasing your reliance on fat utilization, which can increase your performance. So I would say that's a maybe more kind of a way to improve your exercise performance is actually kind of, you know, uh, there's, there's a certain pa uh, paper that kind of called this strategy called the sleep low uh, strategy where you actually, you don't restrict, you actually consume carbohydrates. It's just when you consume your carbohydrates. And depending on when you consume your carbohydrates in your day and relative to your training schedule, you can actually still, you know, because carb carbohydrates are important for maintaining your exercise performance. Mm -hmm. So if you actually cut out of carbs, you're not going to be able to train as hard. If you can't train yeah. as hard, you don't have as much of a training stimulus, right, to, to induce like muscle hypertrophy or other things. Um, but if you actually are able to optimize when you take in the carbs, you can still end up getting glycogen restored within your muscle. But then if you don't take carbs at other parts of the day, you actually encourage the body to, to kind of rely more on uh, fat utilization. Mm -hmm. So you get the benefits of both. So what it essentially involves is you sleep with no carbohydrates. So like you have dinner and you have no carbs in your dinner. Mm -hmm. You sleep kind of essentially no carbohydrates. You wake up in the morning and you don't need any carbohydrates. You train in the morning and fasted or not necessarily. Uh you so so you you can eat like protein and fat yeah. all throughout this time period mm -hmm. and uh, and then in the morning yeah so you could say is it fasted? Not fasted from the perspectives of you, you're still consuming calories. You're mm -hmm. still consuming protein and fat. You're just not eating carbs. You're not eating carbs. Yeah. Okay. Then you have your morning training session. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as I know, yeah, you don't eat at that time point. You just go out and train. Mm -hmm. And then after your, your morning session of training, then you load up with high carbs. Mm -hmm. Then you have your protein, you have your fat. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and also in lunchtime, then you also have high carbohydrates. That's when you eat your, all your carbs is in early in the day. And then later in the day when you have your evening training session, I'm talking this is really like high level, yeah. you know, performance training, then in your evening session. I thought we were done working out for the day. Yeah, we're yeah. Coming back to the gym. Yeah, I think this is for like, you know, competitive yeah. elite level athletes. And then the evening when they're training again, then uh, you don't have any carbs, mm -hmm. you know. And apparently this type of training is really able to improve yeah. uh, endurance exercise performance, increase fat utilization. And I think it's a really compelling in uh, way of, of mm -hmm. kind of improving your exercise performance. And I think it kind of supports in a way what the keto diet is doing. But I think, you know, if we just rely completely on the keto diet, and you don't consume carbs, mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to push yourself as hard. No. Because you don't have the carbs. Yeah, you don't have the glycogen. Yeah. So what kind of athlete would you say this works best for? Like what, what kind of sport are we talking? What kind of, you know, exercise domain? I would say any exercise that really is heavily dependent on endurance exercise performance. Mm -hmm. So any long exercise event of some sort, you know, where, you know, you're, you're, you know, like triathlons or any like running performance, like 5K and beyond kind of thing. Um, but even also... If you do high intensity exercise, but you do repeated bouts of it, you know, we're, we're talking about just like one 
high intensity bout of exercise mm-hmm. in like 30 seconds, it won't matter no. because you're completely dependent on anaerobic or oxygen independent, you know, energy mm-hmm. uh, provision into your muscle to provide ATP. So, but if you do these repeated bouts over and over again, like maybe like hockey, then in actual fact, you are heavily dependent on, on, uh, you know, tr- on, on still glycogen, you know, for as an energy source and resynthesizing ATP inside the muscle and recovery of the muscle function. Um, and I think then, you know, if, then even high intensity exercise, if you do lots and lots of intervals, it actually be, ends up becoming a very aerobic exercise. And, and then, you know, this type of training, you know, kind of then depending a little bit less on your carbs in some way and mm-hmm. using your lipids a little bit more to restore energy sources, I think that could, could, be, uh, could be also potentially beneficial under that type of circumstance. So the high intensity interval training, the more you do it, the more it changes from anaerobic to aerobic? Yeah, like within the first session, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably heavily anaerobic in the very first bout of 30 second exercise that you do. But after you do these repeat intervals over and over again, mm-hmm. it becomes heavily aerobic, huh. you know, because, you know, I guess it's part of that is that, you know, you're kind of actually stimulating your mitochondria to start kicking in and providing mm-hmm. energy. And then you're kind of breaking down glycogen aerobically as well. And, uh, and that becomes more efficient for your muscle. You accumulate less metabolites inside the muscle to kind of a cause, you know, fatigue because the production of certain metabolites yeah. during anaerobic glycolysis and, and, and even the breakdown of, of, uh, you know, phosphocreatine, you know, and so forth. And these kind of things, you know, end up, uh, being very limited energy sources, you know, mm-hmm. so you kind of have to end up depending on aerobic energy sources to kind of provide energy in the longer term. Wow, that's great. I, I had no clue that. I yeah. thought, you know, it, it remains aerobic or anaerobic until you change the intensity or the pace. And then, but that's, that's super interesting. Yeah. So, it. so it's like, yeah, like the, 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 the contribution of your energy sources becomes more and more aerobic. There is still a heavy anaerobic component mm-hmm. because of just the intensity of exercise and the rate at which you're using energy. Just, you know, it needs to be provided in some way in phosphocreatine, you know, you can, it'll probably provide almost a lot of your energy within the first five to 10 seconds of exercise. You know, mm-hmm. just break down the phosphocreatine rapidly replenishes ATP within the muscle. Um, uh, but after that, you know, like then, you know, then you go into anaerobic glycolysis, of course, but that's, you know, going to produce metabolites that are going to contribute to fatigue and shut down, you know, your muscle and cause fatigue. And, uh, but the aerobic metabolism then kind of can kick in a little bit more, especially if mitochondria are really stimulated mm-hmm. and, and they can really, you know, uh, help you, you know, go, f- go a little bit longer and, and, you know, uh, yeah. So what kind of carbohydrates are we talking about here as far as re- like supplementing our glycogen stores, more, um, complex carbs stick with those or a mix of both complex and simple? Um, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure there, um, whether it makes a difference on whether you're eating the simple carbs or complex carbs. I know these can have a big effect on, on your insulin response. Mm-hmm. So if you eat complex carbs, you know, with a lot of fiber or, you know, not refined, it's going to slow the rate of, you know, the sugars and glucose being released into your bloodstream. Um, what effect does that have in the long term? like, you know, over a long recovery period, I'm not completely sure. But certainly, you know, when you're talking about during the exercise or immediately after the exercise, you know, if you're going to be consuming more of those like, 
you know, simple sugars, mm -hmm. you know, that can be taken up much easier because you don't have to really wait to like break down those carbohydrates and right. those can maybe more rapidly taken into the muscle and, and be used, used to resynthesize carbohydrates within the muscle. But I think a really interesting thing that some researchers have been focusing on is like what type of simple sugar should be, you be taking in, you know, you have, you know, you have different, you know, glucose of course is, is yep. a major energy source, you know, that you can take in. And in fact, glycogen is simply a, a, massive molecule of sugar of mm -hmm. glucose molecules you know but uh but it's but it, it it's rate limiting because there's a transporter that takes in glucose in, into your gut and it can only you only have so many transporters and it can only take in glucose at a, a certain level a certain rate if you take more than that you end up just getting like indigestion like you know stomach issues you know right. by consuming too many carbs which that's what a lot of people that are doing endurance events you know it's kind of time trying to like figure out their body and 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 trying to they want to take in you want to take as many carbs as you can but you don't want to end up having like stomach related issues with taking in carbs and so that's what taking in too much glucose can cause um, by just i guess sitting around your gut and so forth and ends up causing problems but in actual fact you can also take in fructose. Fructose is also a sugar, mm -hmm. and there's a completely different transporter through your gut for fructose. So if you only have so many glucose transporters, you're going to be capped out at how much carbohydrate you can take in as glucose. But if you actually take in fructose, that's another sugar, and that's a whole other transport pathway. So if you actually take in glucose and fructose, you're actually going to be maximally optimizing the carbohydrates mm. that you're taking in during exercise or even after exercise to maximize your resynthesis of 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 uh, glycogen potentially or even during exercise you're able to kind of take in those sugars and use it as an energy source during the exercise and uh, that's not even that and glycogen is a separate thing so glycogen is really like you know you're you're restoring those glycogen sources while you're recovering from exercise mm -hmm. but during exercise the only way you can utilize glycogen essentially just yeah is, is depleting it you're not resynthesizing glycogen it takes like 24 hours or 48 hours to resynthesize glycogen and during exercise it doesn't make sense to resynthesize because you want to use it so the body actually you know there's some several triggers that actually stimulate glycogen breakdown versus resynthesis and all those kind of stimuli are are making sure that breakdown is the one that's being favored and not resynthesis so uh, but when you're taking in actually glucose, you can offset your dependence on glycogen. Mm -hmm. So you can actually kind of take in that glucose and use it as an energy source directly. So that's another way of offsetting your reliance on glycogen. Because glycogen, once like you have it, and then that's it. Like you, you then want to kind of preserve it as long as you can mm -hmm. during the endurance event. And then maybe there's other ways like taking in carbs, mm -hmm. you know, like glucose, fructose, and mac maximizing right you know, that, that absorption into your, into your body and depending on those as an additional energy source, exogenous energy source that can really help to maintain your exercise performance. Like the gels and the bananas that tennis players take, for, let's say, exactly. For example, between, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've done that myself before. I've been on yeah. like long cycling rides before, you mm -hmm. know, I really like road cycling and I just like 
hit the wall. I just bonked, you know, I just like all of a sudden I just couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I could barely pedal my legs because I just had no more energy in my body. You know, I then find the local gas station or convenience store, you know, take a Snickers bar or Mars yep. bar, which is, I don't know why my favorite thing to take at that time point. And I mean, boom. Snickers, I understand, but Mars, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, Snickers is a little bit more delicious. Way honest. more delicious. It's, <laughs> it's way better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then I take that and... And, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, you know, able ready to, to kind of, I'm ready to go. I'm mm-hmm. able to push hard again, but that's all glucose. It has nothing to do with glycogen. You know, that's just blood glucose and me using that energy source. Um, but my glycogen's done. It's shot. You right. know, like um, probably at that point, I am have no more, you know, to. that's why I hit the wall. You're just running on glucose. Just, yeah, I ran out of glycogen and now I'm just relying on glucose. Mm-hmm. And you can clearly use that and offset, you know, your glycogen depletion mm-hmm. by relying on glucose. So I think... Uh, an actual fact is really interesting too, because there's there's a study looking at what was the performance of Ironman triathletes. Uh, I think it was Ironman Hawaii, which is the most prestigious Ironman, and the rate at which how much carbohydrates they took in during the race. Mm-hmm. And there's a very strong correlation between if you took in more carbohydrates, you ended up having a better performance, like a very strong association relationship. Uh, you know, in 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 having a better for performance time the more carbs you take the more carbs you take so and even talking it, like throughout the throughout before, the event during, oh yeah after all of that yeah exactly <laughs> like you know let, let's say it takes you know like a half decent individual to do an iron man in like mm-hmm. 10 hours or something like that i forget what the fastest times are maybe i think they're around more seven eight hours um but let's say 10 hours and i mean 10 hours like uh, yeah. you know you need to maintain your energy levels and even if you feel sick and you're not wanting to consume those carbs like you have to find a way to get them in your body whether it's you know as a solid bar or uh, i think um, as, as liquids you know a lot of these like gels easier to consume are much easier to consume like you know i did a uh, a really long endurance uh you could call it a race in a way it's called vatanrunden it's a 300 kilometer Oof. one day uh race in Sweden mm-hmm. and the really cool thing of how they're able to have this event in Sweden is the fact that well the sun almost never goes down you know in the middle of the summer so the sun goes kind of down yeah it, it does get it does get dark you know by 11:30 or something like that but the school the sky is not completely like pitch black it's still kind of like dark blue wow. and then it rises at you know you know uh it starts to rise at 2 32 to 30 in the morning you can kind of definitely get light sweden to, to is see the road. perfect in every way eh? like the quality of life is good the sun doesn't go down everything sounds amazing with sweden well you know it's it's a it honestly is a fabulous place to live i had some of the best summers in there and stuff like yeah. that but you know one, swedish people are like the best looking ever they're you know very attractive yeah. of course and in actual fact i have a swedish girlfriend who i mm. brought back to toronto so I can, att- go, I, can nice. att- I can attest to that there you go <laughs> um but uh, yeah like in the summer yeah sun never goes down you think that's great mm-hmm. but the fact is you need sleep like you yeah. know when the sun rises at 3 30 in the morning your circadian rhythm is all oh i'm sleep deprived mm. yeah i i noticed like in the summer times i would literally end up getting like a couple more like white hairs in the summertime because i was like sleep deprived and so that's just and like from stress and do just like- stress and then i would like in the summer and then the winter it would go away but then the winter is another problem because the sun never rises you know like at mm-hmm. you go to work and it's dark at you know nine still 9 a.m or so and then you maybe say you have like a late lunch and you know 
it's 2 p.m. and the sun is going down like it's dark you know it's oh, dark God. already at 2 2 30 and then you feel like it's time to go home for dinner mm-hmm. but you still have the rest of your work day to go on so you yeah know, i guess it's not perfect then i'll take no, that back yeah. no i in terms of like you know yeah you have really like long summers and then you mm-hmm. can exercise all the time in actual fact i heard a lot of you know uh you know uh people that want to not pay to play golf what they do is they actually wake up at 3 30 in the morning before the golf course even opens they'll go play go, go play a round of golf wow. and then the golf course <laughs> maybe opens at 6 a.m so like i think some yeah. like pensioners and so forth mm-hmm. are, are trying i've been doing that Genius. in sweden but i've never really taken advantage of of yeah, the 3 30 in the morning other than the fact that when i was doing this 200 kilometer race which i'll yeah. continue on with yeah. you know like i actually cycled so it starts at 7 p.m on like a friday evening i believe mm-hmm. and ends on a saturday the next day saturday at let's say 7 p.m so you have to finish it within this 24-hour window but you have about 30 cyclists that are going out onto the road so it's twenty-five thousand people that are doing it and there's about 30 cyclists in every few minute window that are going out onto the road so you don't see that there's twenty-five thousand people because mm. they're throughout the whole entire 24 hours there's just people perpetually getting on there and cycling and um and anyways, getting back to the carbohydrate story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is like, you know, like I was definitely trying to like, how can I actually end up eating different types of carbs, you know, solid bars, because that gives you like more carbs, you know, if you eat that, but then it's like, you just can't swallow it. You need yeah. to like have like water and so forth. And eventually you end up getting like over that, like how long did it take me? It took me, yeah, my best time. I've done it three times and it took me nine hours and 45 minutes. Oh so I was God. averaging over 30 kilometers an hour. And that includes breaks. Like there was actually a couple of like rest stops to go yeah. to the bathroom to like refill on water. And, you know, they have like bread and, and bananas and like some dill pickles to kind of prevent like cramps and stuff like that. Uh, Sodium? During... Is that so you can retain water or what? Well, this is interesting. I actually just introduced this into my fatigue class. Um, and that's a... Uh, and it's Ken four 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 five for those that are interested in taking this uh, fatigue course that I teach, and it, and it's actually not because of the electrolytes, but what appears to be the reason for cramping is called these essentially trip channels, and these trip channels are stimulated by different chemo receptors, and they're actually stimulated by food, and mm. and vinegar acetic acid inside the uh, inside the pickle juice is a one thing that is stimulates these trip channels and these trip channels kind of end up like like so what is believed is that muscle cramps are not caused by muscle itself it's caused by like a reflex like overstimulation of like the nervous system okay this is kind of the yeah. idea of like okay so like why does stretching help alleviate cramps Right. Okay. Why? And well, that's actually affecting the the muscle spindles. So the muscle spindles are actually, uh, if you actually, uh, you know, if you tap on the knee or something like that, that actually causes an excitatory influence. That then, you know, you're not even doing anything, but your muscle mm-hmm. ends up contracting. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like an excitation pathway that is kind of a nerve that is, you know, kind of sensing something in your muscle attached to the muscle spindle, feeding back to your brain or spinal cord and then causing your muscle to contract involuntarily okay Okay? having said that if you actually uh do a stretch a prolonged stretch that can actually reduce the the uh, excitation of these muscle spindles Mm. and actually ends up having an inhibitory influence on the feedback loop okay so you stretch that reduces the muscle spindle feedback and and then you end up kind of having a more relaxed muscle 
So what this kind of indicates in a way is the fact that this nervous system is like hyper excitable when it ends up becoming in a cramped situation. But if you actually ingest certain types of food, that's why people are actually eating pickles or drinking pickle juice, mm. is that acid apparently stimulates these trip channels, which are located within your mouth and in your esophagus and your digestive tract. Um, and by consuming that, that actually ends up calming down your nervous system, apparently. And that's not wow. only pickle juice, but apparently uh, uh, chili like capsaicin in chili uh, also stimulates mm -hmm. that ginger uh cinnamon compounds uh uh cannabis related compounds wow. can also stimulate their different trip channels and so they've actually uh one group uh, this person who won a nobel prize actually he created this uh this anti-cramp drink called hot shot what's uh, in it it's a it's a combination of these things. So so ginger and cannabis. Ginger, <laughs> not cannabis, probably, yeah. but I think uh, cinnamon, mm -hmm. ginger, and uh, like chili flakes or something. I don't know. Like maybe I don't know how spicy it is. I haven't right. tried it because it's quite expensive. Um, but to me, I'm just like, okay, well, why don't you know? I've never tried it. And I've never seen if it's actually worked myself. But I'm more interested in actually mixing these up myself and making a concoction that if when I do end up cramping, create an extract of ginger or something like that and can it and um, cinnamon and uh, some, you know, chili compounds, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully it's like somewhat digestive and appealing and I can consume it without barfing or something like that during a, during an event if I get a cramp. That's the thing is when you ever get a cramp. Yeah. So you're going to keep holding on to this little like beverage and wait for a muscle cramp to happen. Um, but some people get more cramps in certain types of sports, maybe, and more people are predisposed to cramping, maybe, and then they mm -hmm. might kind of want to consider taking those. So, so yeah, so cramping doesn't seem to be necessarily related to electrolytes. In actual fact, um, there were some studies that were done after like Ironman triathlons, and they looked at, well, what is the electrolyte balance in people that have cramping and don't have cramping? And there's absolutely no different in electrolyte levels. Wow. So dehydration is not a... So that's electrolytes, right? Yeah. And then there's dehydration. And they also looked at dehydrating uh, people. Um, so they looked at, they actually did like a, a laboratory-induced cramping. So what they do is they just electrically stimulate the, the calf muscle mm -hmm. or like the, the uh, toe muscles, mm -hmm. and they just induce this cramping response before putting them in a dehydrated state. And then they put them in a dehydrated state. And then they looked at, well, if we induce this, lab-induced cramping again with this electrical stimulation do we get more cramping or less cramping in the dehydrated state and they saw absolutely no difference in the amount of cramping well dehydrated or hydrated dehydrated or not hydrated it's yeah apparently it's all about these trip channels and mm -hmm. i think that's super intriguing for me it's not something i've ever tested mm -hmm. but i really want to test it on myself you know so instead of drinking water just just chug, take some hot sauce chug a chug uh, some hot sauce right hot sauce, or maybe a jar of pickles <laughs> or a jar of pickles just keep a jar yeah, of whatever you prefer maybe you. just choose, choose what you prefer yeah um you know and uh go from there so sticking kind of within the nutrition realm but also pharmacological drugs we talked about antioxidants mm -hmm. uh, when we met earlier uh, so antioxidants came on the scene like a, as far as i remember like a decade ago or something like that mm -hmm. um, and they're huge like everybody's raving about antioxidants uh, the amazing thing they do as far as recovery and cancer uh, combating cancer and all that mm -hmm. but now it's kind of more of a controversial thing yeah. So can you tell me like what, what the deal is with antioxidants? Why is it so controversial? Yeah, so I think this what this really originated from is the understanding that what you know back in 
back in the day, whenever that would have been, the first studies that actually identified that is that free free radicals, or we'll call them reactive oxygen species, mm -hmm. um, or reactive nitrogen species are free radicals. And what essentially they discovered is that these are actively produced by cells in your body, you know, pretty much predominantly in many different types of cells, but also in skeletal muscle. So when you do muscle contractions and you do exercise, the more strenuous the exercise you have, you're actually actively producing more free radicals by doing the exercise itself. And I think where it ended up coming from is that, okay, well, what did these free radicals do? And so if we actually expose cells to free radicals, what you end up seeing is that the proteins end up getting damaged. Okay, so they're like, okay, well, if you just kind of expose these muscles to these free radicals, you know, whether it's taking hydrogen peroxide and just like throwing it onto a bunch of cells, mm -hmm. you know, the cells end up dying, of course, if it's too high of a concentration. Uh, but if it's maybe at a more moderate concentration or something that represents a more physiological concentration, the cells don't die. But if you actually look at, you know, what the protein structure or something like looks like afterwards, you know, the it's, a, it's modified, you know, and they're thinking, okay, well, that's got to be bad, you know, because, um, you know, like, if you are affecting the structural integrity of these proteins or the function of these proteins, then, you know, that's something you probably don't want to have. Now, there's mm -hmm. also an antioxidants inside your muscle muscles, and these are predominantly like glutathione inside your muscle, for instance, and uh, these help combat you know, oxidative damage inside your muscle and free radical damage. Naturally, and just the naturally, body on its own yeah, doing exactly, exactly. So there's always a kind of fight between, okay, you're producing free radicals, but then there's antioxidants inside your muscle. They're actually yeah. combating this. And then the other thing they're maybe supporting this concept is that if you actually look at people that are doing endurance training, they end up having increases in antioxidant enzymes inside their muscle. So that must indicate that, okay, you end up having free radical damage, and then as you get more trained, mm -hmm. you end up having a greater antioxidant capacity to defend against this. You adapt. You adapt. However, uh, and let me backtrack actually, and I think it was in the 1990s actually, there was a paper published by Dr. Michael Reed, and he showed that if you actually infuse, I think this is one of the first studies that proved that antioxidants can help with fatigue. And what they did was actually infused N-acetylcysteine, which is a general antioxidant, and uh, they infused it into the bloodstream of people that were doing exercise. And uh, it was electrically stimulated exercise. It had nothing to do with the brain. They're just stimulating the muscles, mm -hmm. gener generating force and fatiguing the muscles. And what they found was that the muscles ended up having less fatigue, so less reduction in force for the same type of exercise when they gave these individuals infusions of antioxidants in their bloodstream. And that was the first time to indicate that, hey, maybe uh, free radical, you know, free radicals are actually having an effect on inducing fatigue. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're causing damage to proteins, damage to the function of these proteins and in, in, in inside the muscle, what have you, and that's causing fatigue. And uh, there may be still something to that, but Anyways, where I'm going to continue on now is, well, are antioxidants all good or bad? We've actually done some studies myself when I was at Karolinska, and we took isolated muscles from, from mice, and we just loaded them with like pretty much the best antioxidants you can possibly buy, not even on the market. You know, These are pharmacological compounds that mm. are really super potent and are trying to essentially scavenge reactive oxygen species being produced in different cellular sites. You know, One of the major sites is mitochondria. Another major site is called NADPDH oxidase 
uh, oxidases and specifically NAPDH oxidase 2. And we had actually an antioxidant that would inhibit and scavenge the production of ROS from all these different cellular sites. And what we ended up showing was that there were some kind of immediate benefits of maybe you know, taking these antioxidants inside in terms of muscle, better preserving muscle function. But when we actually looked then at the recovery after exercise, mm -hmm. the recovery in the very acute state, if we could kind of, you know, look at some of the data more specifically, I don't necessarily expand and talk about it so much, but if you actually look at it, the, the muscles are pretty, like the recovery is really bad. It's really poor. They actually seem to have the worst recovery when you give them muscle antioxidants. And then we had this antioxidant called the cocktail because we didn't know, well, if, if we scavenge ROS or take an antioxidant and we're scavenging, you know, the free radical being produced at one cellular site, that doesn't exclude from another cellular site. So we kind of create something called the cocktail, which we essentially are, it was then was scavenging reactive oxygen species being produced from the mitochondria, from NOx2, and from wherever. And then we just had it called a general antioxidant and acetylcysteine inside the cytosol that was then scavenging whatever we couldn't even think of after that, I believe. And uh, and what we essentially show is, well, those muscles died. <laughs> so, the ones so, with the high antioxidants. Yeah, the high, super high antioxidants, <laughs> we just like killed the muscle in the long run. Oh, like it, it was kind of contracting in the beginning, yeah. but in actual fact, after 30 minutes of recovery, like those muscles were dead. Poor okay? mice. Yeah, well, the muscles were, like the mice were unfortunately like they had, yeah, I mean, yeah, they were going to die either way. They were died like, well, we we just took the muscles out of these mice. Like they were, <clears throat> oh, they were already dead. They were, yeah, yeah. So oh, okay, we didn't okay. like do this like in, in the mice, yeah. you know. So we actually just took the muscles out of the mice mm -hmm. and then we looked the at vegans the are together. fuming right now listening to you, but it's okay. Uh, yeah. It's all good. Well. You, you can't do this research on like carrots and We can't do this celery. research on humans. Yeah. And I think that part of this is to kind of help us to maybe, hey, maybe we shouldn't be taking antioxidants in humans. Yeah, right? I we mean, can't, how else are you going to test this? Yeah, exactly. How else are we going to test this? But anyways this very much fits in line with lots of evidence in humans, accumulating mm -hmm. evidence in actual fact, that if you actually take antioxidants, there's been some long-term studies in humans now. Okay, so acutely, maybe there's some benefits of, of, of scavenging that ROS and helping with your fatigue performance. Okay, there may be some evidence of that, especially mm -hmm. when you're doing like submaximal endurance type exercise is beneficial. But when you're doing like maximal exercise or high intensity exercise, not so beneficial. Even if that's when you're producing the greatest ROS, the major causes of fatigue during very high intense exercise, like 30 second all that exercise, is actually accumulation of metabolites like inorganic phosphate, hydrogen ions, mm -hmm. uh, depletion of. Uh, not the free radicals. Depletion of ATP, increased magnesium, mm -hmm. not free radicals. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's probably like. It's, it's masked. It's the least of your worries. It's the least of your worries. It's essentially masked by more important fatigue mechanisms, okay? So that's why we don't really think it's a factor during high-intensity mm -hmm. exercise. But during endurance exercise, maybe there's potential influences there because if you actually put antioxidants on muscle, you can actually show that you can manipulate the amount of force that's being generated by the muscle during submaximal contractions, which is almost everything that we do in everyday life. Like during walking, even when we're doing very intense exercise, we're not doing like all out super max strength contractions every yeah. time, right? And so in actual fact, you know, there's can be some acute benefits, like, you know, let's say you want to like benefit just this one instance, you want to take antioxidants to benefit your exercise performance. Maybe there's something there, but to be honest, you know, I'm going to continue now and tell you why you shouldn't take it in the longer run. Mm-hmm. Because if you actually, there's been some studies where people have done like endurance training for, I think it was like eight to 12 weeks. And there was a study published by Michael Risto out of Switzerland. And they gave people very high doses of vitamin C and E. Uh, okay, like every day, 
for 8 to 12 weeks. So one group got these antioxidants, another group got a placebo. And what they ended up showing is then the individuals that took those antioxidants long term while also undergoing endurance training, they didn't actually end up showing much, so much adaptation to the endurance training when they're also taking these antioxidants. So essentially, it's like the benefits of exercise and the training were blunted or reduced in some way by taking these antioxidants, which was really then intriguing. You know, that kind of was one of the earlier insights to show that, okay, so antioxidants or maybe free radicals, they're not just bad for muscle now. Because if we take antioxidants long term, people that are taking them don't end up having as much of a training effect when they do endurance exercise. So it's not it's like, it's not only that antioxidants don't benefit you, they also might be doing some harm. Exactly. Yeah, they're definitely doing some harm. And so now this is getting really confusing. So like kind of what would we want to like wrap up story? I think where this is actually leading now in the area of free radicals and the research around this area is not that they're bad. Okay. Is that mm-hmm. yes, we just because it's kind of like, we're going to get to that eventually. I'm sure you're going to talk about lactic acid. Just mm-hmm. because we can record lactic acid being produced during exercise doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Okay. So if we actually end up recording, hey, we have more free radicals being produced in muscle, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. In actual fact, there's evidence where we're actually taking antioxidants long-term indicates in actual fact that these free radicals are really important signaling molecules that are helping to stimulate those endurance training adaptations. Hmm. So you just mentioned the, the lactic acid. Hmm. Um, I was, I know uh, Normatec boots. Have you heard of Normatec boots? They're like super popular between athletes. Um, what they do is like when they're hanging out at home or something, they put those boots on, they plug them in and it's electric. And, and um, what it does is like it c- contracts around your legs. By boots, I mean like you literally wear them like pants. Almost. Okay, like yeah. They're huge. Yeah. And then they contract and they and they massage your legs in a way that flushes the lactic acid out of them. Right. And supposedly that enhances recovery. So what I'm going to ask you is like, you said the lactic acid and, and the builder, like, yeah, obviously maybe a lot of lactic acid is not good, but mm-hmm. does that mean we have to flush out any ounce of lactic acid that our body produces post exercise? Like what's the benefit of having it? Okay. So I guess this will kind of get into like one of the biggest myths and yeah. controversies around, you know, what causes fatigue. And when I asked my fatigue class in the beginning of the the class in this Ken 4445 course, you know, what do they think causes fatigue? And everyone's like, lactic acid, you know, is a big one. Mm. You know, other people mention some things, you know, because they learn it from other profs like Dr. Hood mentioning inorganic phosphate, these kind of things. But lactic acid is a major one. And and I'm just really like, you know, then I'm really excited because in, in some ways it's like then I want to teach them in the course, well, what does lactic acid actually do? Because people are right and wrong. Lactic acid does cause fatigue, but it's not in the way you think it does. Okay, so how does it do it? Because the main people think about it, the main idea is that, okay, lactic acid causes muscle fatigue is a belief that you end up having this burn inside the muscle, mm-hmm. which is in a way, kind of a correct association. Um, but uh, but you have the lactic acid that originates from the muscle, and it's believed that if you have this accumulation of lactic acid, that you know this causes the muscle fatigue and impairs you know the ability for the muscle to generate force. Okay, but you know some of the research that was done out in uh, Karolinska and by some other researchers, um, by my postdoc supervisor, ended up 
kind of, well, you can soak a muscle in lactic acid and nothing will happen. Hmm. So that was really the kind of the proof that, well, if it, if the accumulation of lactic acid, you know, is causing fatigue, well, if we soak yeah. a muscle in lactic acid and nothing happens, it's perfectly happy. You can generate force and nothing nothing changes. Okay. So okay. what's the relationship there then? So, well, essentially there is indicates that, well, lactic acid doesn't cause muscle yeah. fatigue. However, there's some other research that has been very intriguing. And lactic acid does cause fatigue, but at another level. It causes fatigue more at the level of like your brain, okay, or kind of within your nervous system. And remember how we got back to kind of how lactic acid, it's a sensation of pain in a way, like inside the muscle, that burn, right? Well, that burn sensation is kind of picked up by nerves in your muscle. There's like essentially uh, receptors that pick this up. They're called like 3,4 afferents. And they're metabolite receptors that can pick up things like lactic acid, hydrogen ions, what have you. And what a study ended up doing was they wanted to look at, well, why don't we take these kind of concentrations of things that we think cause fatigue, and why don't we inject them into muscle? People that are not exercising, just inject them into their muscles, and then see if we can end up inducing this sensation of pain. Hmm. And what they did was they injected lactic acid into the muscle, okay? And the actual fact, if you just inject lactic acid into the muscle, nothing happened. No pain? No pain. Okay, now they injected uh, uh, a low pH solution, so to make the muscle more acidic, mm-hmm. because you also have the generation of uh, hydrogen ions. That's the major reason why you have acidosis inside the muscle. Muscle is generation of hydrogen ions, and uh, nothing happened. Okay. No pain sensation. And then they injected high ATP concentration, which I, I think this also stimulates these three four afferents, and they found that nothing happened. But what they did was when they combined those things together. When they combine the lactic acid with a low pH solution, with the high ATP, it ended up stimulating these receptors, these nerves, and ended up inducing that sensation of pain that you typically get during, that you would associate with lactic acid. Yeah. Yeah. So in some ways, people are correct. So it's lactic acid, but not just lactic acid in itself, because you have to have the acidosis happening in the muscle. Um... And uh, I don't know why it requires ATP, I have to be honest, you know, because ATP concentration is generally well-maintained in the muscle. But I think it's just like maybe it was just doing extra stimulation of these receptors to Mm -hmm. induce sensation of pain. Um, But personally, I think it looks more to me, the research is that, you know, acidosis, you know, caused by low pH and hydrogen ions and lactic acid are stimulating these nerves inside the muscle that is then talking back to your brain and telling you, hey, this is painful, and we need to stop. Yeah, you're getting tired. You're, you're getting tired out. and you're really depending on an, you know, you're really depending on like anaerobic metabolism. It's mm-hmm. a, a, a rate kind of like it's a limiting energy source. You're eventually going to run in, run out of that energy source if you keep going. And uh, and it's telling your brain, hey, like I should stop this, right? And it's that sensation of pain that actually that ends you. up stimulating your brain to kind of, mm. you know, like, hey, I need to stop kind of thing. Wow. So in, in fatigue, like fatigue is a lot different than other physiological processes, like let's say muscle growth or mitochondrial adaptation or anything like that. It's different in the way that it's largely psychological. Yeah. Like the way that you perceive fatigue has a huge impact on well, how fast you get fatigued. Yeah. 
So I mentioned to you in this book, uh, Endure by Alex Hutchinson. So he mentions a study where they had a group uh, run on a treadmill, I think, or maybe it was a stationary bike or something. And one group was looking at a, a smiley face in mm-hmm. front of them. And the other group was looking at a frown face, like a just like an emoji that was like frowning. And uh, the same exercise, the same, I think it was like the same muscle fiber type or something. Like the, the participants was as close to each other as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that were looking at the happy face did not get fatigued as quickly as the other ones, as the ones looking at the frowny face. Right. Or or the placebo, I think. Right. Or the control, rather. Mm. Um, so in your research, like when you're looking at fatigue and recovery, how do you account for the psychological components of it? Like that must be pretty tough to to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, get, I don't, mm-hmm. I guess. I do not factor in... You know, I guess I really much more focus on the physiology, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm focused, of course, on muscle. You know, of course, I also do some work that also kind of is able to assess the physiological mechanisms affecting kind of the nervous system related factors of fatigue, which there is certainly some evidence there as well. Mm-hmm. But in terms of psychological factors, you know, it's not a topic of research, you know, that I focus on, be, but be I can't, honest. but I can't doubt that it's important, right? right? right. You know, like... I can just remember reflecting on being an athlete, you know, being mm-hmm. super nervous, you know, after a competition and just like, you know, not being like, like motivated or like focused, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, you know, really thinking positive and pushing hard and, mm-hmm. you know, all these doubts getting in your mind or what have you that are kind of affecting your performance. We look at that at the Olympics all the time too, right? Uh, you know, for example, like Perdita Felician, you know, she mm-hmm. was the uh you know 100 meter 100 meter hurdles she was lined up to do olympic gold you know and in the olympics back in the, i can't remember what olympics was that do you remember i have no clue it's atlanta or sydney well mm-hmm. anyways and like in the uh, early 2000s maybe early 2000s yeah. perhaps and uh anyways you know world's best athlete in that and you know mm-hmm. she just stumbled right she ran into like the hurdles and fell and this is a massive psychological factors that are, I think, are definitely at play. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many factors that are, you know, people are in peak physiological shape. But I think unless your mind is focused and, you know, like, and also maybe like you can get into things where in the end, like, yeah, like you, your your competitor can beat you by really affecting you psychologically, mm-hmm. right? Making, yeah, yeah. making you feel... Kitchen making you feel inferior mm-hmm. and you know okay i'm gonna i'm i can't i'm gonna give up i'm losing now there's no way i can come back right, but right. you know it seems like the people that really win are able to kind of overcome that and just really believe in themselves mm-hmm. i think there is a big component of that but you know it's not i think that i think that's a Stuff whole another a whole another yeah. avenue of sports, sports psychology, psychology really yeah. yeah i think that's super interesting uh so before we get into the um more of the phar- pharmacological stuff that you work on mm. uh just briefly how does the type of muscle fiber come into play when it comes to fatigue like as far as um an athlete's composition being more uh fast twitch than slow twitch or vice versa how does that affect fatigue or does it oh it does definitely yeah Yeah. fatigue is you would say the fatigue happens uh, especially fast in fast twitch fibers so when we talk about a lot of fatigue it's going to be uh, you know if you have more fast twitch fibers then you're going Mm -hmm. to be more fatigable but Fast twitch fibers also make allow you to be more explosive, allow you to be more powerful, and so definitely people that are involved in those types of sports are going to have more fast twitch muscles, mm-hmm. you know. But they are more fatigable because they depend less on oxygen. Like they can just provide that energy anaerobically, right? 
and it's optimized for that function. Yeah. So I would say definitely if you have more fast twitch fibers, you're going to become more fatigable, but you have advantages when it comes to more like sprint and explosive and ballistic type sports. Um, Whereas if you have more slow twitch fibers, then those are very fatigue resistant. And, um, and yeah, you know, like, of course you actually, and maybe I'll kind of comment on this very, people are always thinking, okay, during exercise, well, you know, you can actually selectively, you know, activate your fast twitch or slow twitch fibers. And that is not completely true based on kind of how you actually activate your muscle fibers. You always activate your slow twitch fibers first. Always. It doesn't matter how fast of a muscle contraction you do or uh-huh. how slow of a muscle contraction, you always activate your slow, slow twitch muscles first. And that makes sense from kind of a agility, like a, you know, let's say we're talking about like, um, you know, very fine precision type movements. It makes sense to activate those slow muscles so we're not like kind of jerking around mm-hmm. and, you know, activating our fast twitch fibers to, to kind of, you know, we have really herky jerky movements or something like that. Um, but also when we activate these slow twitch muscles initially, these are also very fatigue resistant, like stability muscles, like, you know, in our back and so forth, you know, we can kind of stand up and not get fatigued in our body by having just a maintained posture. It all makes sense. That, now what happens is when you are, you know, like uh, activating your muscle, you activate your slow twitch muscles, and then you start to progressively activate then more your fast twitch muscles when you increase the, uh, the, the contraction intensity. Mm-hmm. Okay, then you end up activating the muscle fibers when you need to be more powerful, you need to have greater strength. Mm-hmm. So during maximal contractions, then you start to actually, you know, activate these, uh, these muscle fibers, these fast twitch muscle fibers, but they're very fatigable. So, uh, so what about the, the amount of muscle mass that someone carries, let's say in a competition, one on one or anything, and uh, one athlete carries a lot more muscle mass than the other one? Would you say that the ones with the one with more muscle mass would get fatigued? earlier um i know it's a vague question because it depends on what context what exercise yeah, what, what yeah, sport yeah. but um the the theory that i heard is and this could be complete bro science not real at all but yeah. it's it's that muscles require a lot more oxygen and so that you know the more muscle mass you have the more oxygen consumption is going on so you're going to get tired quickly mm. Well, I think also when you have more muscle mass a lot of that muscle mass especially people who are really hypertrophied and have a large muscle mass mm-hmm you know, that's going to be predominantly your fast twitch fibers, you know, that are going to be able to hypertrophy to a greater extent. And, um, and these get tired quickly. Then. And Slow these get more quick. Yeah, exactly. And so forth. But you know, uh, how can I answer your question? From one perspective, it depends on if that sport is, is, is dependent on strength to weight ratio or power to weight ratio. Like in a cyclist, if you're going up a climb, mm-hmm. it's really not advantageous to weigh that much. Right. But if the event is really short, you know, then, you know, maybe it doesn't become a factor because you have so much more power than you produce relative to your weight. Mm-hmm. But if you look at all the Tour de France cyclists that are winning those, those events, and most of them are climbers, mm-hmm. you know, they're really thin. So they have, they can generate a lot of power aerobically, but they're really light. And so I guess, you know, it depends on the sport that you're talking about. But if it's kind of like, you know, weight is not really an issue. Where would that be a factor? I'm trying to think here. What's a weight-independent sport? Where your weight doesn't matter? Yeah. Um, like maybe soccer, maybe... Because, I mean, you don't have to do weigh-ins. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah, soccer. But you still have to carry your body around. But yeah. yeah, like it's, you know, it's not... Yeah, you have like short bursts of... Anything but combat sports, maybe, you know, where like you have to do weigh-ins, you have to be on, on certain mm-hmm. weight. But even in combat sports, so two guys can be 170 and one has a lot more muscle mass than the other one. Yeah. 
And so based on what you said, would you, I think you would favor the one that has more muscle mass in maybe a three-round fight yeah. compared to a five-round championship fight. Yeah, because... exactly. Yeah, if you know, more muscle mass means more power. Mm -hmm. So if you're more powerful than that person and that makes the difference, then... And it's a short fight. And it's a short fight, then, you know, that's going to be more important. But, mm -hmm. you know, especially, of course, it, you know, knocking that person out and everything, yeah, yeah. you need to kind of have half-decent power. But mm -hmm. if you can't maintain that performance and you get super fatigued, mm -hmm. then over time, that other person who has better endurance, who may have less muscle mass as a whole yeah. can still end up winning that fight right. through technical knockouts and you know like yeah. scoring points and uh maybe still knock you out in the end mm -hmm. you know because you can't defend yourself yeah. so you know i think i think uh yeah it's, it's a difficult question to answer that's always something i i just wondered about when when watching mma um so getting to something we mentioned earlier uh this is a drug called ck260 that you've been working on yeah uh which sounds like some badass fighter jet or something like ck260 <laughs> sounds so cool yeah. um so how did you get to working with this drug and what does it do exactly yeah so and it's short for something way longer so. that's right so exactly so I'll, I'll just describe the drug first so it's mm -hmm. made actually this drug ck260 is a short name acronym that we give it but the long name is ck2066260 Okay, so you okay. shorten the numbers. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, and this drug is made by a pharmaceutical company in South San Francisco called Cytokinetics, and they're actually you know, well, uh, I mean, maybe in terms of pharmaceutical companies, considered small, but at the same time, when we went to visit the facility, I mean, it was pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, at least several hundred people that are working there, and their their focus is on developing drugs to improve muscle function. And how I came across it was reading a paper of my colleague who was using it in one of his studies to try and treat muscle weakness in a given disease called nemelemyopathy. And I saw the, what the drug did in his paper, and I'm like, boom, you know, like it, it completely recovered the muscle weakness it looked like. And I'm like, this drug seems very interesting, and, and maybe we need to test it ourselves. And mm -hmm. I actually... Uh, wanted, outside the context of disease and all that. Yeah, out, outside the context of disease and mm -hmm. so forth, you know, of course they're interested in mm -hmm. using it in, in the context of, of treating disease. Um, and we contacted the company and we're like, hey, we don't, we would be interested in testing your compounds and trying to figure out, you know, how this drug works, you know, from oh. the tools that we have. They were very interested in kind of how the drug essentially might affect uh, calcium uh, regulation inside the muscle because calcium is actually one of the major regulators of force generation okay so when you end up generating like electrical activity from your brain that get gets detected by the muscle and the electrical signal becomes a chemical signal that chemical signal essentially is calcium and when you release calcium the amount of concentration of calcium that you end up releasing from its main storage site within the muscle called the sarcoplasmic reticulum the greater the calcium you release the greater the force you end up producing so right. so from that context calcium calcium is very very important how this works is that calcium ends up binding down onto where the contractile proteins are and it opens up these like so let's say there's kind of like like blockers okay when when there's no calcium there you kind of have these like blockers you know what we'll call tropomyosin okay mm -hmm. and it's blocking the ability for the cross bridges which are kind of the little like arms that mm -hmm. allow you to generate force um when there's no calcium there's like tropomyosin in the place to essentially block these sites for the cross bridges to attach however when you have calcium coming to the contractile machinery uh that exposes 
the binding site. So it removes, it removes the blockers and then the, you can end up having the cross bridge attach and generate force. So then calcium is important in that, in, in that influence. So what, how this drug actually appears to work is that uh, it works at that con contractile machinery level at the level of something called tr troponin. Okay, troponin C is where calcium binds to and calcium binds to it and essentially removes those blockers of tropomyosin mm -hmm. to allow for the cross bridges to attach and, and that's the, you when you produce force and that's when you produce force now calcium is now when you calcium is kind of anytime you have an action potential electrical activity from the brain that induces that chemical signal to release calcium but calcium goes in and out very rapidly like it releases the calcium into the cytoplasm of the muscle fiber and induces that that reaction, but calcium is always being pumped back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum by a pump called uh, sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase. So this this pump is ATP dependent. It's one of the main energy sources, uh, a depletion of energy mm -hmm. sources inside the muscle. And um, so what ends up happening is that this so calcium is always kind of getting pumped in and out of the cytoplasm all the time. So muscle contraction happens, and then all of a sudden muscle relaxes. So what you want to do over time is keep, you know, when you're kind of focusing and doing a sustained contraction, what's happening is that you're maintaining that electrical activity, that electrical activity is maintaining and increasing the calcium inside the cytoplasm of the muscle that is keeping those blocking abilities of the tropomyosin that keeps those binding sites open to allow for the cross bridges to attach and then you get force. But yeah, calcium is bumping on and off all the time. But what this molecule does is it keeps calcium on troponin. Like it just keeps it holding there. It's just contracting. Yeah, so calcium is always is, is attaching to troponin mm -hmm. to kind of reveal these blocking sites, mm -hmm. you know, to allow for cross bridges to bind, and then it pumps off, okay, once you relax or stop that electrical activity from mm -hmm. your brain. But what this drug does, it keeps calcium there at that site for a longer period of time. Now, if you keep calcium there for a longer period of time, that means that those binding sites for the cross bridges are going to be open for a longer period of time, which means if they're open for a longer period of time, those cross bridges are going to bind for a longer period of time, and you're going to generate more force for any given calcium concentration. Mm -hmm. So that it's it's very it, it is a bit complicated to explain what's happening, but essentially we know that calcium is a major regulator of force. But essentially, what this drug allows you to do is you can get more force out of the muscle with less calcium because it's holding the calcium down mm -hmm. at the contractile machinery level for a longer period of time, and you become more efficient in your utilization of calcium. Okay, so yep. calcium goes down, you can generate more force for any given calcium concentration, and that's essentially how this drug works it is how it works and that's how it's able to kind of treat muscle weakness in a way because you know uh for any given calcium concentration that you have inside the muscle from electrical activity from your brain it can give you more force for any given calcium mm -hmm. concentration so outside the context of, of muscle weakness maybe disease ultimately it can help you produce as much force if not more with less effort correct Right? Exactly. So you're more efficient in how you utilize your your yeah. There's two your energy. Correct. There's two ways to look at it. Like let's say you have the same effort level, mm -hmm. you're going to get more force or more power. Or right. if you want to maintain the same level of muscle performance or more same like you know then to maintain the same force or power, mm -hmm. you can actually do that with less effort by taking this drug. 
every athlete right now is just searching for this drug so they can yeah well you can't buy it <laughs> you can't buy it you can't buy it. it's not on the market you can only get it directly from the company from the company by signing a non-disclosure agreement right, right, <laughs> and right, using right. it only for research purposes so there's like i think there's def you know so that's the main factor you know there's mm -hmm. there's no way athletes can get a hold of it you right. know from that from that reason to kind of essentially mm -hmm. improve fatigue and now we're actually going to talk about fatigue actually because then we actually were able to show for the company for the first time that hey this drug not only is only able to treat muscle weakness by giving people this this drug but it can also improve muscle fatigue right and the reason for that is like i mentioned remember how i mentioned how when the calcium is kind of going in and out of the cell uh, inside the muscle it's stored in a site called the sarcoplasmic reticulum and when you pump the calcium back it costs energy by circa mm -hmm. okay sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium atpase now, if we reduce the amount of calcium going in and out for any given amount of force that we're generating, because like we said, we can generate the same force with less effort, what that less effort means that you, is you actually have less calcium being pumped in and out also in the muscle. If you have less calcium being pumped in and out, you are consuming less ATP mm -hmm. to pump calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And that's, a major, energy. and that's a major energy yeah. depleting site. So mm -hmm. therefore, you're conserving energy. And that's essentially mm -hmm. what we showed in a paper we just published last year. And and I'm sure that's going to be kind of a area of interest that's going to be continued on mm -hmm. with that company that they're not able to only utilize that drug to treat muscle weakness, but it can also be used to treat muscle fatigue. And there's not really many, if any, drugs out there specifically designed to treat muscle fatigue. And this could be potentially one. So what's the difference between... Uh, how this drug works and anabolic steroids. So, uh, for like for example, anabolic steroids give you power and, and all that, and also muscle growth. Yeah. But I guess um, recovery is only a byproduct of it, whereas this drug, like recovery, is the major point of it. Is that is that accurate or no? Uh, this drug, okay. How this drug essentially works is that it only works when you're using it, and it doesn't have any like long-term effects on okay. like in, in stimulating adaptations or nothing like that. It's kind of like someone would take this drug, they would get stronger or once they're off the drug, like all the benefits are, it, mm. you know, it doesn't stay, stick around. Mm. Okay. Whereas testosterone actually doesn't make you stronger. It allows you to recover faster. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it's like, you know how it essentially works is that if you take testosterone nothing will happen okay but what it allows you to do is that when you train you end up having muscle damage and then you also have of course then stimulation of protein synthesis and so forth and what it essentially does it helps to augment that and it helps to kind of make that process more rapid okay and in you know kind of resynthesizing those proteins building that muscle back up and that's how testosterone works Right. Um, so it's like that has long-term effects, right, on kind of and on, you know, helping to increase muscle hypertrophy and all these yeah. kind of factors. And uh, so that's why some people argue that <clears throat> if you test positive for some uh, performance-enhancing drugs, that you should be banned for life, have mm -hmm. like a lifetime. Because even if you come back after you serve your suspension, maybe those benefits are still lingering in your in your in your body yeah exactly actually you bring on a really interesting point with testosterone because there was a study that was published let's see here maybe six seven years ago and it was a group from oslo norway and what they showed was they actually did studies in mice and they gave them testosterone 
Okay, some some had testosterone, some didn't, mm-hmm. and they want to look at what are the effects of te- you know just okay. Well, if you give testosterone to mice and you end up having them do like a training situation, did they end up having more hypertrophy? Yes, they did. Okay, and this was this only took I think the mice two weeks to get stronger. Like everything in mice is like way acceler. It's super accelerated. Every process in mice is like super fast. Okay. That's why they're so commonly <clears throat> used in, in research. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, like when I, when you look at a lot of the physiological pathways, they're the same as in humans, but mm-hmm. when you test like muscle properties and so forth, I mean, muscle contraction is way slower than mice. Muscle uh, metabolism is way slower mm-hmm. in uh, muscle metabolism, way slower in humans than in mice. Mm-hmm. Everything's just looking at it at an accelerated rate. Okay. Because, you know, if you do in mice, you say muscle, you can see hyper muscle hypertrophy in two weeks. In humans, it, usually to see muscle hypertrophy, it, it would take you like, I think a minimum of eight to 10 to oh, 12 wow. weeks. So right. when you end up getting stronger in the beginning, when you're starting to exercise, a lot of those benefits of increases in strength are actually not muscle related, they're neural related without completely understanding how mm-hmm. that all works. But essentially, it's kind of like, you know, when you're lifting weights and you have a lot of like co-contraction, you're shaking all over the place. And I think what you end up having is better optimization of what muscles you're controlling towards the movement. You know, not when you have like a lot of like the, the you know, opposing muscle. Let's say you're talking about, um, you know, like a, a, a biceps curl, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in a beginner person might end up having also a lot of contraction out of their triceps, which is going to fight their biceps. But you know, and, and a person who's an expert, you end up kind of able to relax that triceps. You don't fight against the biceps as much. You have much greater strength and, and you know, force generation from that perspective. So I think there's a lot of like neural changes that are happening. And I think a lot of people believe in that. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah. So what happened with these mice, we go back to testosterone, is that what was more interesting was when they stopped giving these mice testosterone. And one of the major things that you end up seeing when you end up having muscle hypertrophy is an increase in a nuclei inside the muscle that appears to very be, be important and integral to muscle repair, having more nuclei inside the muscle. And when you end up having testosterone, uh, you end up having even more nuclei that are end up getting produced inside the muscle. And that might be explaining why you can recover and repair faster mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing training and you, it allows you to hypertrophy to a, a faster extent with uh, training. But when they stopped taking the testosterone, then they looked over a three-week period when the muscle actually within three weeks in the mice, the muscle hypertrophy was then completely gone. So the hypertrophy is able to increase pretty rapidly within two weeks and then three weeks it's gone, which is super interesting. But what they saw within the muscle fibers was it still maintained all those nuclei, the adaptation that is responsible for still repair there. were still there. Right. So, so they retained all the benefits. So they retained, stopped so, taking, but, but yeah, they retained. they retained all the benefits. So this is kind of, they suggest in the paper, this is like mm-hmm. a muscle memory effect. Mm-hmm. So when you end up going to the gym and you're training, whether you're taking testosterone or not, you have a muscle memory in the sense that maybe you end up accumulating all these extra nuclei inside your muscle fibers. That allows you to end up having a faster like when then when you get back into the gym people mm-hmm. think that okay like i can end up kind of getting stronger faster than i did ever before and this might be the mechanism by how that works is you end up having more nuclei when you end up training and that ends up helping to repair your muscle and regenerate the muscle faster but in testosterone it allows you to even have more nuclei than normal mm-hmm. okay and allows you to kind of and then you just maintain that advantage even after you've taken that testosterone 
So I guess this is getting back to your question about lifetime doping and, and bans, that this is potentially evidence of the fact that if you ever doped in the past, you might be able to still hang on to an advantage that other people don't have by having doped previously. Yeah. And I think this is a, a reason to, to make sure that you have lifetime bans. It's at least a very important debate, especially, I guess, it also depends on what kind of uh, performance-enhancing drug you took yeah. and whether, like, the lingering effects, like, yeah, they're still there, but are they there at a good enough concentration to, like, really make a difference in performance? Yeah. But then yeah. again, in elite sport, like, everything makes a difference. Yeah, exactly. So, um, okay, I, I, I took up a lot of your time, but I something that I really want to hit on is, um, so you published this paper on ice baths. Mm. Um, so it's, you know... Cooling after exercise compared to heating, maybe maybe a sauna or a hot tub or something like that. Yeah. And it was actually featured in the New York Times. So can you expand a little bit on a little bit on this paper and kind of what's the original idea behind ice baths? Yeah. The original idea behind ice baths is kind of the same reason I would believe in like physiotherapy and so forth, is that you know you want to reduce inflammation inside the muscle. And if you reduce inflammation, so, okay, let me go back first. So typically when people are using ice baths is in the recovery, the post-exercise recovery period after exercise, mm -hmm. right? During the exercise, you don't use yep. ice really. Um, but afterwards, after you've exercised, then you kind of want to encourage healing of the muscle and recovery by the idea. The assumption is that, you know, you take a cold water bath, you're going to reduce that inflammation. That's mm -hmm. one of the reasons. Another potential reason is that you might reduce oxidative stress inside the muscle. You know, if you actually cool the muscle, this will actually dampen the amount of oxidative damage that's happening inside the muscle, and that'll recover muscle function faster. Another potential premise by how it could work is that, uh, is, I'm trying to think if there's any other reason for that. Like the norepinephrine rush that you get from the... Yeah. And then muscle damage, yeah, muscle, even in terms of muscle damage, I would say it's really kind of also related to probably inflammation. That's, mm -hmm. I would say that's these are the primary premises so, yeah. by which. But we wanted to kind of not necessarily tackle that specific question. In actual fact, there was some evidence to, to show very recently that if you do one belt of resistance exercise and then you look and track the, anti, the, the inflammatory pathways after a 10-minute cold water ice, ice, ice bath, so people kind of did resistance exercise, mm -hmm. and then they went into an ice bath for 10 minutes or so. That's typically what people are doing. Right. Um, and then they came out of that. They took muscle biopsies, and they actually found absolutely no effect of the ice bath on inflammation. So kind of the, the if you're actually looking at what's happening with like the, the genes that are regulating inflammation, yeah. there is no effect on inflammatory uh, signaling oh. uh, for 24, 48 hours after that resistance exercise that actually stimulated inflammation. So is that why they would say, uh, so I was listening to Dr. Rhonda Patrick. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Yeah. Um, but so she was saying that, <clears throat> yeah, jumping in the ice bath right after the workout is not a good idea. But if you wait like an hour, an hour and a half for the natural, anti to, to leave time for the natural anti-inflammatory process in your body to happen, and then you jump in an ice bath, then you might see the benefits. What would you? Uh, but I guess that also depends on whether the point of your exercise was muscle growth or whether it was like for endurance training. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. So yeah, that that's I think that's really important to kind of separate out. And I think all of these this needs further investigation. You know, like let's put it out there that 
you know, I was just reading an article the other day. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, okay, are they trying to make beliefs using ice baths? Okay. Well, Patrick Marlowe uses it every intermission. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he uses it apparently between the second and third uh, period. Yeah. And uh, he jumps in the ice bath. He takes off all his equipment, mm-hmm. jumps in the ice bath for four minutes. Yeah. And, you know, is pretty much out and taking a shower and ready. While, while, while the while some of the hockey players, the last hockey players, are still rolling into the change room at that mm-hmm. time point, like he's doing this like super fast. So people are clearly using using it, and uh, you know even uh, you know there was uh, the very last year there was a very first uh, Canadian who finished a what's called a double deca ultra triathlon. So what this is, and she's the very first Canadian to finish this. Her name is Shonda Hill in British Columbia, and what that means, double deck ultra triathlon, is you're doing 20 Ironmans in a row. Oh my God. And that's part of the competition. So in 26 days, that's apparently how, I guess they have a couple of recovery days, but yeah. anyways, 20 Ironmans over 26 days. That's insane. Is a race. That's like Iron Cowboy. Yeah. On Netflix. On right, Netflix. exactly. Yeah, yeah, I did watch that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it's just crazy, right? Insane. And, and she was using. You know, there's a picture of it. if you actually go on the internet, you'll see that she's submerging her her leg. She takes like a big garbage pail and f- has filled it with ice and ice and water, and she is putting her lower legs into this ice bath, and she she's doing it. Um, and it's not only that. There's lots of athletes that are using this. Even when I was in Sweden, you know, I think they were talking about the, the professional tennis organization. They mm-hmm. were like, okay, well, we want to buy a whole bunch of ice baths. And then I was at the, you know, the Stockholm Arthroscopy uh, Conference and, saw, and it was related to like, all, it was all sports medicine doctors that were there. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, well, you know, a lot of athletes are requesting ice baths. And I was there invited to kind of present my research to be like, well, maybe, know, not. maybe, maybe you need to reconsider or yeah. like, you know, think about it. And, uh, and interesting timing. Yeah. So, so a lot of people are doing it and I think it's a super interesting topic and uh, going back to my study. So what we kind of really were focusing on then on, so we mentioned resistance exercise inflammation. It doesn't seem to affect inflammation. Mm -hmm. And also there's been a long-term training study, resistance training study, where after every strength training session, they had people go into an ice bath. Maybe this is where Dr. Rondo Patrick was referring to where uh, they went to ice bath for 10 minutes after every resistance training session and the people that went in that ice bath had less muscle hypertrophy. Right, so they're, they're missing out on the benefits. They're missing out on the hypertrophy is what yeah. you want. Yeah, exactly. So there's something going on where it's not good, actually, to do cold water immersion. So we want to tackle a different question and more looking at it from the perspective of endurance exercise. And we know that glycogen is pretty important for, mm-hmm. for, um, for endurance exercise performance. So we wanted to look at, okay, if you do very endurance type exercise and you fatigue from that is going to be resulting in glycogen depletion. If we actually then use cold water immersion, what happens to the recovery of muscles from the perspectives of glycogen resynthesis, the recovery of force generation, and then what happens if you're to kind of be like Patrick Marlowe and use that ice water bath and then go back out and have to do exercise again. Yeah. And what we essentially showed was, L, if you actually do this cold water immersion, uh, and mind you, we did it for a pretty long period of time. We were doing it between like an hour to few hours. In the ice? In, in the ice. In ice. Yeah, wow. yeah. So this is done in humans, actually in their arms. So okay. we were actually interested. This was done at uh, Mid-Sweden University, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like the center of, of uh, like uh, it's like the Nordic Stockholm winter 
sports center, like as a really elite performance center there. And they're really interested in cross country skiing. So that's why we were heating and cooling the arms. Mm. And we had like a, essentially a, a cuff that we, you would use like in physiotherapy, but we modified it so that we could just kind of regulate whether it was hot water in there, cold water, I'll get to the hot water bit. Right. But anyways, but we could also put cold water in the muscles. And we actually cooled those muscles for, you know, I think it was two hours or something like that. And we mm-hmm. had those people exercise again. And when you actually did that repeated belt exercise performance afterwards, we ended up showing that, you know, they actually were able to generate less power if they had their arms cooled than if you didn't have it cooled. And then we took isolated uh, muscles from mice and we did the same type of experiment. We actually like had them at physiological temperature, which was, you know, 30 odd degrees. And then we also cooled those muscles down to 26 degrees. And then even like, I think it was, uh, yeah, 15 degrees or something like that. So much colder. And what you end up seeing is that the, the recovery of the force of that muscle is is impaired and glycogen resynthesis is also impaired in that muscle. So we essentially show that if you apply, and why did we do long-term cooling? Well, I think we're kind of trying to take it to the extreme. You know, like what we showed is it was completely tolerable, no problem to cool that muscle. Like it, if you believe that cold water immersion works, then we took it to the extreme. It's like, okay, well, we just put it for a little bit longer time, mm-hmm. completely tolerable, no problems at all. And uh, we'll see if that ends up affecting exercise performance. And we end up showing that endurance exercise performance is impaired if you use cold water immersion after doing exercise. Compared to heating? Compared to, no, okay. Or just, compared just in to, compared, yeah, compared to like not using compared cooling. Compared to just not using cooling. Now, why the study also became really interesting too is not only from that perspective, but we also did heating, mm-hmm. right? So we also, within the same study, also, okay, well, why don't we heat the muscles? And this was done in humans. Mm-hmm. So we also, they did an endurance-type exercise. They did endurance uh, cycling of the arms, actually, and then we heated the arms instead of cooled them. And this was all done in the same subject. So they came back on different days, yeah. heated, not heated, cooled. So it was like kind of a, a good you know, control mm-hmm. experiment in that, in that perspective. And uh, then we heated the arms in the recovery period for, for two hours. And then we end up showing that if you actually do that exercise performance afterwards, they ended up having improved exercise performance, much better preservation of power during the exercise, which is an indication of the fact that you have less fatigue. And then when we did these studies in isolated uh, mouse muscles, mm-hmm. we also ended up having a much better recovery of, of strength inside these muscles. And when you did that fatigue uh, exercise after that recovery period where you heated the muscle, you also are able to much better, uh, you have much better fatigue resistance of those right. muscles as well. And that related to actually faster glycogen resynthesis. So heating is, is allowing them to not only use their energy more efficiently, but also recover at a, at a better rate. Yeah. And I think the explanation that we ended up kind of summarizing from this paper really is that, well, recovery is dependent on metabolism. You know, if we kind of break it down to a very simple perspective is the fact that, you know, when you have uh, faster metabolism, you have faster recovery, right? It's kind of the thinking back to testosterone, you know, you're kind of like accelerating, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, metabolism is celebrating reactions. And I think of that also from the perspective of this heating and cooling. If we cool the muscles, we are also slowing down some metabolic reactions and uh, and that could be the very basic principle by which we are impairing recovery, you know, without right. getting into more complicated things like, okay, what about blood flow and so forth? Mm-hmm. And of course, if you actually cool a muscle, you can also cause vasoconstriction, 
of the muscle. So we actually will restrict. Because the blood vessels are constricted. Yeah, exactly. Blood vessels are going to constrict, and then you end up having, you know, impaired, you know, energy delivery to the muscle, um, you know, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, from that perspective could also be uh, detriment as well. Whereas if you heat the muscle, then you're really accelerating all these processes. For example, right. the main, there's a there's critical enzyme that dictates glycogen resynthesis as glycogen synthase, okay? And simply, if you accelerate the that enzyme in working faster, you're going to end up resynthesizing glycogen faster. Mm-hmm. You're going to end up... And that's what we showed. Right, right. So, like, it gets a, really confusing for non-sport scientists or not, not like non-muscle physiologists too, especially like when we're talking athletes, coaches, all that, just kind of distinguishing uh, the the truth out there from all the BS that you read in articles, not not talking scientific articles, yeah. like, you know, in, in, in other media outlets. Mm. So how would you advise someone to kind of be able to think critically and distinguish between what's might actually be the truth and what is clearly fabricated or you know mm. bro science so and i know i'm putting you on the spot a little yeah. bit here but this is like this is a huge issue in nutrition and sports science yeah more more so than any other place i think yeah exactly like you know when you're publishing these uh these big public you know everyone wants to kind of get into these really high level publications right like mm-hmm. nature and cell and science and what have you and the scary thing about getting sometimes into these journals is that I recall it reading it this at some point is that a lot of the data in these high level publications cannot be replicated, which is crazy, right? So, How come? The, well, I think the, the thing to get into these big journals, you have to kind of prove some novel concept, some super new concept. Oh, okay. No one's ever shown it before. And then you're, you know, you have to prove that in many different ways. And you mm. definitely, those are a lot of animal experiments or something like that you have to like kind of knock out genes, mm. you know, acutely and increase those gene overexpressions. Then you have to uh, make, you know, some mutant mice that overexpress these genes or don't have these genes and then, then you know, treat it with a drug and so forth. And, and then there's just a lot of pressure by a lot of people to kind of get into these high level publications and the kind of pressure to kind of prove some new concepts and this goes for not just those publications but a lot of different publications and so what i'm trying to say and get to is the fact that if one paper has shown it i wouldn't necessarily be like oh you know this is the be all and end all mm-hmm. i think where we kind of eliminate you know myth from reality is when that science can be repeated over and over again by different groups okay so one way of kind of looking at and being able to kind of maybe distinguish that is potentially, you know, you could, for example, very much use like Google Scholar, mm-hmm. you know, and look at what papers have been cited pretty readily. That might give you an idea that, okay, people do believe that over time, this is a concept that is been proven over and over again, or um, not necessarily, but that's maybe one reason. Mm-hmm. But definitely if you are reading, you know, uh, a lot of research papers, I would say kind of follow up and see different labs. See if different labs are able mm-hmm. to prove these concepts because, you know, different labs are they're, they're not bi- they're they're not biased, right? And in that sense it's kind of, you know, but if the same groups are kind of showing the same thing over and over yep. again, of course they want to show that because they have a bias. They they have a bias, right? But if they are able to show this across uh, different situations and different labs and different, you know, circumstances, and it's not just mice, but it's been proven in humans, for Mm -hmm. example, 
you know, then I think that's really the best evidence to show yeah. that that's true. I think especially when, when we get to um, just like popular media outlets outside the journal, academic journals and yeah. academic papers, um, is when we're reading a, a, a website or something and it says a study finds this and that, it's always some like super sensationalized stuff that's like, you know, groundbreaking. Mm. But then, like you said, it's it's just that one paper. Yeah. So unless it men- unless this article mentions like a systematic review, yeah. unless it you know mentions other papers that are related to it, then maybe approach it with with skepticism. Yeah. Like healthy skepticism. Yeah, for sure. I think it's worth kind of considering new concepts, right? Yeah. And then testing those. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so again, I've taken up so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, just one more thing before so we covered a lot of like misconceptions and myths mm. in in this area what would you say is there anything else that we haven't mentioned like a myth or misconception that people typically have but is actually not true so i heard like for example about foam rollers mm. like the science behind foam rollers where it supposedly breaks down the adhesions in the muscle or something but that's not actually the case that's not an area, not an area i can kind of yeah. really you know, I don't have expertise on that. Mm-hmm. I definitely use foam rollers, yeah. you know, kind of for massage and to try and like, yeah, heal muscle faster, break down that, you know, uh, fibrosis or whatever that's kind of, you know, from, mm-hmm. from muscle injuries and so forth. But I don't really know. Actually, yeah. you know, what's interesting, foam roller, if we're talking from the perspective of massage, okay, yeah. like it's kind of massaging muscle, you're doing it, mm-hmm. you know, on your own. There was a paper published by uh, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, in, at a McMaster University, and he published in Science Translational Medicine uh, Journal, and he ended up showing that massage actually able, is kind of ends up if you just massage a person's muscle, you end up like ends up stimulating the same pathways that end up inducing like an endurance training adaptation. It was perplexing. It was like you, if you just massage just the muscle itself, mm-hmm. you end up actually increasing like uh, yeah, like muscle muscle recovery. And adaptations like as if you were exercising and that was very interesting no wonder these athletes are just getting massages left right and center yeah maybe yeah maybe i mean you're promoting kind of recovery of that muscle and speeding up metabolism you know i think again that requires you know further support and you know repeatability and so forth i mean you know Mm -hmm. dr tarnabalski definitely does some excellent work and um but i think it's worth kind of you know it's very very intriguing Mm -hmm. and uh could be the mechanism by which you know foam rollers might be beneficial right well thanks a lot for your time again really appreciate it um anything you want to promote as far as your your lab work your students uh where can people find you maybe social media or other outlets uh yeah so i'm gonna link the new york times paper in the description yeah sure please yeah exactly yeah you can kind of check out my new york times paper Mm -hmm. um if you go on my website york university it links over to like researchgate you can follow my publications on researchgate by typing arthur j cheng um i just created a twitter account i don't have much going on Okay. Um, my grad student actually is running that Twitter, <laughs> nice. Twitter channel at the moment. Your publicist. But, but eventually, but eventually, yeah, my publicist. Yeah. So, uh, so eventually, you know, we might have some more content on there, and uh, and where else? Yeah, you can kind of take my course if you're interested in fatigue. Take Ken four 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 five Physiological Basis of Fatigue. It's a pretty uh, you know, popular course and gets filled pretty quickly. So, uh, so if you're interested in learning more about fatigue sure. and these concepts, I'd definitely consider taking that. And yeah. if you're interested in research on fatigue, then definitely hit me up and. Uh, email me at uh, ajcheng at yorku.ca. Perfect. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot, Lou.